0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 of Luke chapter 13 today, beginning a new series of messages entitled, Turns. This past Tuesday afternoon, I got a text that I needed to get to Methodist Hospital quickly. Uh, Alan Martin, who's been part of our church for many, many years, uh, had suffered an aneurysm and he was had some bleeding on the brain, and he was in bad, bad shape. And so I arrived at the hospital right at the time that he was arriving in glory, and Alan passed away, and we uh, had his funeral service this past Saturday. And so I want to ask you to pray for the Martin family, ask that God's comfort be with them, and also that we would have opportunities to Be the hands and feet of Jesus and try to encourage them as they go through this season of grief. I think in each of our lives, if you think back, you can remember a moment when you received some news that was very, very sobering. It might have been the news that someone that you loved was diagnosed with a terminal disease. It could have been that you were called in and told that your company is reorganizing and the job that you depend upon to support your family is being eliminated. It could be that you realize that the marriage is over, that your child has been caught with drugs, or that you need to get down here quickly because there's an accident. All of us can look back at those moments in life when things happen that we don't completely understand, And sometimes they tempt us to ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now most of us have heard of the man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor who preceded over Jesus' trial and his torture. It was Pilate who ordered Jesus to be scourged, to be mocked as a king, it was Pilate that though he knew Jesus was ultimately innocent, he succumbed to political pressure and he had Jesus crucified for these reasons. Pilate being a Roman soldier had a mixed assignment whenever he was given the province of Judea to govern. On one hand, it was good news because he now had his own province. He was moving up in the Roman world, there in that province, he would speak with the full authority of Rome. His power was not to be questioned. But he also had a bad assignment because Jerusalem was a long way from Rome. There wasn't very many reinforcements. And the people of Jerusalem were known for being rebellious. They totally despised Rome. They had some deep-seated religious beliefs as well as cultural beliefs that meant that Pontius Pilate, from the day he arrived, would be totally despised. There would be no way for him to really win in the court of public opinion. He was in for a very difficult job. It was somewhat of a mismatch. Imagine Ted Cruz being elected mayor of New York City. It just wouldn't really be a perfect match, if you will. And so here's Pilate arriving in Jerusalem, and from the day he arrives, he's going to be disliked. And so the story picks up when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, and the Bible says at that time, some people came and reported to him, him being Jesus here, about the Galileans whose blood, Pilate, had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, I'm a sports fan, and Monday morning, this past Monday morning, when I began to uh, look at the news from the sports world, there was one item of note that just continually popped up everywhere I looked. It was on my Facebook feed, it was on the news, it was on the fake news. Wherever you looked, uh, you saw the subject of the anthem and the protest and all that was going on there. I personally like sports to be kind of an escape from all that, where I don't have to think about that, but uh, the sports world had turned political, and there were protests that forced everybody to wrestle with some very difficult issues. Now, I think one thing that we need to realize is that protests are nothing new. In fact, in Jesus' day, people were protesting something that was quite similar to what was happening in our own society last week. There was such a thing as the Roman ensign, ensign. It you, You've seen it. If you've seen movies from ancient Rome, when the armies go into battle, they'll have that pole, and on top of the pole will be the eagle. Or you'll see uh, the, the armies, as they are lined up on the sides, ready for battle, There'll be somebody that has a pole, and there'll be these banners on that pole. And those were the insigns. They were the signs of ancient Rome and their power and their military might. They were probably most similar to what they had to our modern-day flag. Well, Pontius Pilate, whenever he had become governor of Judea, he had brought the symbols of Rome's military might into the holy city of Jerusalem. And this ignited a massive protest from the people. They did not want those symbols of Rome and their might to be anywhere around their temple. Now Pilate threatened to kill the protesters. If you don't back down... I will kill you. And they looked at Pilate and said, you must not know us very well because we're not going anywhere and you can kill us and we're still going to stand our ground. So Pilate relented and he took the ensigns of Rome and he moved them to Caesarea and he kind of made that his home base because of some of these protests that were taking place. Well then, Uh, Pilate decides, I'm going to do something else. You know, Pilate wasn't going to just go away and hide. And so he decides he's going to build uh, an aqueduct that goes through Jerusalem. And he had to pay for that aqueduct. And so he decided that he would take the money from the temple offering plates. Everybody say, oh. Yeah, you just don't do that. I mean, he was he was robbing the temple offering plates to fund a public program, and so guess what happened? The people began to protest again. And Pilate then did what in their view was the unthinkable. He dressed some of his soldiers up in plain clothes and he sent them into the temple and they began killing some of the protesters as they worshipped so that their own blood was mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. And Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and the Jews are absolutely livid. How could Governor Pilate do this? These people were doing nothing more than going to worship how could he do this you may remember the ancient king solomon solomon once wrote there's nothing new do you know the end of the quote under the sun there's nothing new under the sun the reality is is that many of the issues that we wrestle with today people have wrestled with similar issues for 2000 years now the subject matter and the exact form of the issue may change a little bit, but people basically, generation after generation, wrestle with similar issues. And so a couple of the questions that are common to the human experience are, why, why do bad things happen to good people, and why is there so much injustice? Now in Jesus' day, whenever they dealt with this subject of why do bad things happen to, to people... Here's, here's how they came down. They came down that if something bad happened to you, it meant that you must have some type of real bad sin in your life and that God was judging you. And so if a child was born with disease... The people would assume that within the parent's life, there must have been some type of sin going on, and so they were continually connecting bad events to the judgment of God. So Jesus tackles this hot button in verse 2. He responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? So do you think that the reason why these Galileans died in their worship is because they had some deep, dark sin that was worse than anything that you could possibly do? He says, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So what he's basically saying in in verse 3 is there was nothing different about them than there is about you. The same sin that they had in their heart, you have in your heart. And then he goes to another item of news. He says, or those 18 that the tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? So he takes two news stories here. The first, the killing of the Galileans in the temple. Now one could potentially see why bad things happened to them. After all, they were Protesting Rome. And if you know anything about Rome, you know that Rome was really, really good at killing people. That's what they did. They conquered people, killed people. If you protested against Rome, there was a pretty good shot that you were going to get killed. So perhaps somebody could see why it was that they wound up having the calamity come upon them. But then Jesus brings up another news story. This tower at Siloam had fallen. And killed 18 people. These were not protesters. This was not Rome's fault. This was a tragedy. If it was anyone's fault, someone might blame God. And so now we arrive at a point where the stories of tragedy and injustice that are on our screens, that we read about and see every single day, match the stories of tragedy and injustice that are in our Bibles. Now, there are a couple of human tendencies that you see displayed both in the Bible and you see it displayed on the screens from which we get our news. The first is the human tendency to frame everything as good guys versus bad guys. Now, this starts early on in life. My four-year-old son, Bennett, he likes to play with his Star Wars Legos. Some of you are 40 years old, and you continue to play with your Star Wars Legos as well. And so Bennett will come in, and he says, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. And he fights between the good guys and the bad guys, and we kind of take that mentality all, all through life, and we start forming. okay you know some people are the good guys some people are the bad guys generally the people that are like me are the good guys and the people that aren't like me are the bad guys and, and and people with power and authority will often see themselves as the good guys and the bad guys are the ones who break the rules are the ones who question authority and then you go to another segment of society and they'll the, the people that may be under authority and they'll say no 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 we're the good guys the bad guys are the ones that make the rules the bad guys are the ones that try to tell us what to do. The reality is, is that I almost always see myself as the good guy. And I almost always see the people that are not like me as the bad guys. And then we begin to frame everything between good guys and bad guys. Okay, so politically, those that vote like me and think like me are the good guys, and those that don't, they're, they're the bad guys. Same thing uh, in sports. If you follow my team, you're the good guys. If you don't, you're, you're the bad guys. We take that into just about every area of life where we begin framing life as good guys versus bad guys. Now, there's a second human tendency, and that is the tendency for us to play God. This, too, starts early. In fact, within the scripture story, it starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's sin was not eating non-organic produce. Their sin was rebelling against God. And particularly, if you read the account, the serpent slithered into their world and tempted them with the idea that if you do this, you will be as God. And so they were trying to do something that would give them the power and authority and the position of God. And Christians often fall into this trap when we begin to try to explain events of our time as God's judgment on people. Now, that's not to say that God cannot extend His judgment on someone for sinful behavior. In the Bible, there's examples of God doing just that. But we as Christians have to be very, very careful not to speak for God and say, God is judging this, peop- this group of people or this person for their sin. You guys know I like to backpack. And a few years ago, we were on this backpacking trip. And we, we hiked through this rainforest one day. And then we set up camp. And we were going to continue the hike the next day. So that particular night, everything that could go wrong went wrong for me. I had a flashlight, and whenever I got it out, it was broken, but I prepared, and I had a backup flashlight, but it too was broken, so that didn't help any at all, so I was in the dark, and then I finally got my tent set up, and I get into the tent, and I'm kind of going through some of my gear, and on the airplane... Uh, my insect bottle of insect repellent had leaked all over the place, and this is like this is not like that that soft, you know, mommy's insect. This is like the hardcore stuff. Okay, this stuff you don't want leaking on everything, and so I got insect repellent everywhere, and I'm trying to clean that up and get it off of everything, and it's just made an absolute mess. And then throughout the entire night, I'm freezing to death. And I can't figure out, why am I so cold? I've got a good sleeping bag. Well, the two-liter water bladder that I had in my backpack had leaked. And so water had pooled at my feet all evening, and it was like 38, 39 degrees outside. And so it was just like everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. And so one of my buddies that was on the trip with me, he was hearing me whine and complain. And he said to me, you know, Lash." You must have a lot of unconfessed sin in your life. God just must be pouring down His judgment on you. Maybe it's time for you to get right with God and and confess that sin. Now, he was just joking with me and and trying to be funny. Truth is, I do have sin in my life, just like you have in in your life. But I do hear Christians often play God in certain ways. We take something like Hurricane Katrina. And we say, well, Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on all the sin that takes place on Bourbon Street. Well, I'm not a huge fan of Bourbon Street and some of the stuff that goes on on Bourbon Street, but you've got to be really careful talking like that. Because the same hurricane that hit Bourbon Street also hit, just a few blocks away, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where young men and young women who are training for ministry are devout in their faith, where the gospel is being proclaimed, and where a work of God is taking place. And so you have to be really careful, because when you take an event like that and say, well, God's pouring out His judgment on these people, at the same time, godly people are being affected by the event. Be careful not to play God and put yourself in the position of judge. Sometimes we also judge God. Now, I know you initially push away from that idea and say, there's no way that I would would judge God, but people do this as well. We say, God, it's not fair. It's not fair that that tower at Siloam and 18 people were killed, what kind of God are you? What kind of God sits quietly when there are people that are suffering, when there is injustice? God, you need to do something. You need to embrace my perspective. You need to embrace my timetable. You need to do something and you need to do something now. We're playing God. We're criticizing God. Well, at this point, Jesus begins bringing some answers to the protest of His day, and it's also answers to the realities of our own day. Now understand this, not everybody agreed with His answer, and not everybody agrees with His answer today. But Jesus does bring an answer. So in verse 5, He says this, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So he brings two commonalities to the discussion. Number one, as tragic as death can be, we're all dying. We will all perish as well. And then he also brings a commonality that we all have sin, that we all do things that are wrong, that this isn't us and them, that this isn't good guys and bad guys, that in reality... Everybody has done things that are wrong. Injustice, racism, abuse of authority, murder. These are sinful things. There is no way to package them except to say it's wrong, it's sinful, it's against God. Yet at the same time, realize that they are symptomatic of the deeper issue, which is the sin that is buried deep within our hearts. They are symptoms of the real disease. Sin does not divide us as good guys versus bad guys. Sin is present in all of us. Now, this is a little countercultural, but sin ultimately says we're, we're all bad guys. How, how many sins does it take to be a sinner? You say, well, my sin's not as bad as their sin, but it's still sin. And so we all have darkness in our heart. We all. We all see, hear, and feel the consequences of sin every day. We all live in a world that is saturated and dripping with sin. We are sinful people living in a world of sinful consequences. You say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't really like this part of the message very much, Lash. Well, okay, you could have stayed home today and you could have listened to Joel Osteen preach on TV and I promise you he would not deal with this. But this is an issue, sin, and our need of forgiveness is an issue that is dealt with page after page in what we call the Bible. And the Bible says when it comes to sin, it's not good people versus bad people, it's all people. We all do things that are wrong. So imagine the irony of a sinful heart like mine demanding that a sinless holy God free my world from darkness when He's already sent His Son into my world to expose the darkness and liberate my heart from death's eternal grip. Imagine the irony of me calling out to God to say, God, do something when He's already done something. You say, well, what has God done? God sent His Son. And in sending His Son, He freed me and He freed you from the penalty of sin upon our lives. In sending His Son, whenever we place our faith in Him and we are saved, transformed by the power of the gospel, our lives no longer have to be lived in rebellion against God, but we find forgiveness for our sins, we find purpose for our present, and we have hope for our future. Our lives begin connecting to the reason for which we were created. God has done something about suffering and injustice in the sending of His Son. You say, well, Lash, there's still a lot of sin and darkness in this world. I agree. There's a lot of sin and darkness in this world. And that's why there's a book at the end of the Bible that speaks of the second coming of Christ, when Christ will come again. You see, at the first coming of Christ, Christ freed me from the penalty of sin. At His second coming, He will free me from the presence of sin. Now, we live in this interval between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. We live in this awkward time where we can find forgiveness of our sins and be transformed within our heart, and yet we still live in a world that is suffering from sin. And so Jesus tells a parable in verse 6 a man had a fig tree that was planted in the vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. And he told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year, but if not... You can cut it down. Now, what's going on here in the parable? You and I are the fig tree. The owner has every right to cut the tree down. And the owner looks at the tree and says, I planted this tree to produce fruit. It is, its intention is to produce figs, and it's not doing so. It is wasting soil. It doesn't belong here. I've given it three years, and yet it still is not producing any fruit. So therefore, I'm just going to cut it down. And the gardener comes and says, no, don't cut it down yet. Give me a little bit more time. Let me dig around it, and let me put some fertilizer in there, and let me Let me get after it. Let me see if I can't help this tree come alive. And if you'll just give me a a year, because I know there is a time where ultimately it will be cut down. Just give me a little bit more time to work with it, give me a little bit more time to help it produce fruit. Genuine Christianity begins with a turn, a conversion. A turn from sin to faith, a turn from playing God to trusting God, a turn from running away from God to running towards holiness. Genuine Christianity is more than just you attending church, you being baptized, you walking an aisle or praying a magical prayer. Genuine, genuine Christianity is involves a conversion of the heart. And that conversion of the heart may be seen in prayer, seen in baptism, seen in your life. A genuine Christian has a turn of heart from sin towards godliness. You begin to bear fruit because that's why God birthed you. That's why God created you, was to bear fruit that speaks to His glory. A genuine Christian has fruit in your life. And yet sometimes you find people that are like the fig tree that does not produce fruit. Now, the Creator has every right to say, enough is enough. But God is patient. And God is enduring. And He longs for the person to turn. He longs for the person to to come alive in Christ. He longs that the reason why this individual was created in the first place will become a reality in their life, that they might come alive in Christ. And so the, the gardener, he, he cultivates the soil and he puts fertilizer around it and he does everything that he possibly can to see the fruit begin to take place within the, within the tree's life. And we all know that one day time will run out, but in this interval... The God of the universe longs for you and I to come alive and to produce the fruit and to be the people that He created us to be. To turn from our selfishness, to turn from our sin, to turn from our egotistical positions, to turn from the positions where we think we're the good people and everybody else is the bad people, to turn to the reality that we are all sinners in need of grace. And that I am who I am because of the gracious love of Christ and the same grace that I have received in my life, I must learn to extend to others as well. And that same grace also pushes me towards the holiness of God so that my life bears fruit that testifies to the fact that God has done a work within me that only He can do. The loving gardener, waits for the moment for you to come alive. Now, I wonder this morning if this is your moment. I wonder if that's why God brought you here this moment, for you to come alive in Christ. Has there ever really been a time where you've trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Would you be so kind as to bow your heads with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? If this is your moment and God has stirred your heart, I invite you right now to call out to God. There's not a magical formula for you to follow. It's about your heart connecting with the God that created you and loves you. Now, you might say something like this, Heavenly Father. I admit that I'm a sinner. That I need forgiveness. And I need a new life. And so I pray that you might bring light into the darkness of my heart. Change me and grow me. I pray that my life might find its purpose that I might produce fruit and that I will be the person that You created me to be. Help me, Lord, today to come alive in Christ. This is my salvation moment where I trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our heads remain bowed throughout the room because this is a private moment I just want to ask you, and I'm not going to embarrass you, I'm not going to call you out, but I just want to ask you because I want to know as a pastor, was this your moment today? If this was the moment where you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? Lash, this was my moment today. This is my moment when I trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, I thank you for this room, the people that are here. I pray that your fruit might be evident in each of our lives, that we will be the people that you have called us to be. Help us, Father, to lay down the arrogance that would drive us to try to be you or to become angry with you. Instead, Lord, fill us with faith that trusts you and understands that You are God and that You are in control. May we live our lives for Your glory, and may our lives reveal the fruit of Your life within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.